0: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and Jerry's not here again. She's kind of checked out, frankly. And this is Stuff You Should Know, uh, the Wright Brothers edition, which, frankly, um, I've been using frankly a lot in the last few seconds. Mm -hmm. Frankly is... um, I think grew out of our wind tunnel episode. Am I correct in presuming that?
0: Mm, I don't know. I don't remember. I know. I think this is just on a list.
1: Oh, okay. Whatever. Sorry.
0: (laughs) 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 Uh, I will say, though, that this, um, and I know I say this for a lot of episodes, like, why haven't they made a movie? Mm -hmm. But it is astounding to me that there has not been a big, sweeping, three-hour- biopic about the Wright brothers it's it's really weird
1: are we still saying biopic
0: that's what I say that's fine you say biopic Um, right
1: yeah it just makes sense to me but um (laughs) so I I agree wholeheartedly and one of the things that that struck me is that while I was reading some research on this is that at one point these guys like in a test flight got up like 600 feet in the air and I was thinking I want to see what that looked like yeah because these are the first people, some of the first people flying, and they're suddenly six hundred feet up in the air. In and, and this was in a glider. This was before it was powered flight, so they were really at the at the mercy of the wind right then. And I'll bet it was one of the most terrifying things they've ever that's ever happened to them. And I thought that would be really something to see. And that's just one of many amazing things that the Wright brothers did. They were they were amazing human beings.
0: Yeah. I mean, the story has thrills. It has, uh, chills. It, you know, it has thrills and chills. It's obviously something that changed the course of humanity. Mm-hmm. There are these like m- very movie-like aha moments that happen along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's two guys that were not trained engineers. They were self-taught brilliant men uh, who figured this out, but they they didn't go to school to learn it. So it's just, I don't know. It's got all the right elements, I think. I, I did find a a 29-minute short film from 2012 mm-hmm. uh, that's featured Tony Hale. Oh. Uh, yeah, the great <laughs> you know, Buster Bluth. Yeah. Um, he, was also the dude who,
1: he was also the dude who rocks out to Mr. Roboto in that classic Volkswagen ad from years back. Oh, that's right. I forgot mm-hmm. about that.
0: Yeah. But he plays one of them. I can't remember which one. And it, I, I saw a little clip from it. It looked like it was okay. Like It had a decent production value, but... It sounds like a Drunk History episode. I know. It totally does. But it was Was he playing it straight or was it supposed to be tongue-in-cheek? No, he was, seemed really drunk, which was weird. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, no, no. It was no. It was totally straight. I mean, it's hard to imagine him. Like, the scene that it showed was a very serious scene of him acting. And it was very hard to not laugh a little bit because I think Tony Hale's a brilliant
1: mm-hmm.
0: comedic actor. So sure, it was kind of tough. I was like, oh, man, it seems funny to me still. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. But uh yeah there needs to be a big big movie i want to see this on the big screen.
1: Yeah because so again i mean you kind of hit on some stuff but it's it's really important to point out that the guys who were the first human beings to create um to to have to undertake a powered flight were the same ones who invented that flying machine mm-hmm. that allowed for powered flight and they were a couple of self-taught amateur bike shop owners who decided that they wanted to be a part of figuring out how to get humans to fly, which was super duper in the zeitgeist at the time. It was like the thing, especially um, if you were an engineer, that you were probably thinking about. Um, there was a, a lot of uh, technological um, Rasmataz going on with things <laughs> like, you know, the the the, the telegraph, which has been around for a while, I guess, but locomotion was a big one. Trains, figuring yeah. out how to move humans beyond just foot power or bicycle power. Or um, horsepower. Or how horsepower, yeah. Um that was that was a big deal. And and to to get people into the air flying. There were a lot of people working on that. So in on one hand it was also kind of audacious that the Wright brothers would be like yeah, you know, we'll we'll toss our hat into the ring and see if we can be the ones to figure this out. Just because they were self-taught and they were outsiders as far as the scientific community was concerned.
0: Yeah, and Dave uh, Dave Roose helped us put this together, and Dave uh, is very keen to point out that, like, they were outsiders. They weren't trained engineers, but they were far more than guys that just tinkered in a bike shop. Um, mm-hmm. They did do that, but they they very much. Um, they didn't stumble upon this thing. They very much were very data-driven, um, very rigorous in their experimentation. Mm-hmm. And it's no surprise that they were the first. Um, they, they may be unlikely, but not surprising, if that makes sense.
1: So even at the time, uh, the idea was that it would probably probably be the French who were the ones that figured out human flight. And even the Wright brothers apparently thought this. But it was still open enough that they decided that that they – they, they could give it a shot. And they also saw a lot of parallels. You know, they're very famous, as we said, for owning a bike shop. That was what their their trade was in Dayton, Ohio. Um, but they saw a lot of parallels between bicycling and flight. Like, for example, um, bicycling requires a lot of balance. Mm-hmm. And you have to figure the same thing out when you're flying. Um, you have to build a machine in the most lightweight, lightweight way possible um, that can also convey a human being, um, aerodynamics factor into it. So sure. they had a bit of a head start. They weren't coming. It's not like there's nothing in the bicycling world that has anything to do with this, especially if you're an engineer and thinking about things like aerodynamics as far as bicycling, bicycling is concerned. You can translate that to, to flight, and that's what the Wright brothers did.
0: Yeah. I mean, a plane is just a bike with wings, right? Basically. <laughs> <laughs> or at least the early ones kind of were. This so is so like a, a kite and a bike.
1: My dad's always said that. He oh, says, yeah? Junior, if anyone ever asks you <laughs> what the difference between a bike and a plane is, you tell them nothing. <laughs> then
0: he'd pop some ginseng and go along his way. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right, so the Wright brothers, uh, of course, Wilbur and Orville, they were born um, to parents, Milton and Susan. They were the third and fourth sons. Uh, there were seven kids total, two um A pair of twins, a pair of twins, just two people. I kept wanting to make it four people. A a pair of twins. One set of, single set of twins. There you go. uh, Died in infancy. So there were um, five kids that grew into adulthood. And uh, we're going to pepper in some facts about uh, their sister Catherine here and there throughout the episode. Because Catherine, I feel like, does not get uh, much credit. And she, while she was not... Uh, inventing the aircraft she was very very key to their operation and uh, s- management of these guys throughout their life and she was a-, a school teacher and then later on a suffragette in ohio
1: yeah well their they i believe their grandfather and probably their father too was big on um abolition and um th- like the 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 whole family kind of had this uh real defined moral compass that they they adhered to rigidly. Um, they also were taught as a family to be maybe a, a little wary and suspicious of outsiders and that you found your strength and your trust and your your um, basis in the family. And that actually kind of helps explain Wilbur and Orville's relationship. Neither one of them ever married, and they planned on spending their lives together, um, that's what they were going to do and that's what they did until uh, Wilbur died uh, prematurely at age 45. Um, up until that point they they did spend their lives together. but that what I'm saying is they were they were going to grow old and die together. Mm-hmm. And from the outside it seems really weird. but when you start to read about them and who they were and how they connected, it's it's awfully sweet actually um, that they had... They had a great love in their life, and it just happened to be their brother. Not in yeah. any kind of weird sexual way, not in any incestuous <laughs> way. You know, I think the Greeks it had like— you
0: even got to say that, you know. It
1: does, it does. But we're in 2020, man. Don't sure. forget. But I think the Greeks had four different kinds of love, and one of them was like a love between two men. Bromance. Um, bromance, sure. But this was <laughs> brother-mance, and there was no mance to it. It was just they, they were brothers that, that fit together in a way— that you rarely see siblings do, and they happen to change the world from that interconnection between them.
0: Yeah, their mom uh, had a college degree, and she was great at fixing things uh, because her father was a mechanic. And so they got some of the tinkering from her. Their dad was a minister uh, and also ran, I think, the church newspaper from what I could gather. Sure. And like you said, the brothers were tight. There was um, They were four years apart, but uh, Wilbur wrote this. Um, on paper I don't know if it was a was it a memoir or did, was he just writing like uh, a
1: journal I don't know I'm guessing journal I think they kept journals
0: alright well he said this from the time we were little children my brother Orwell and I lived together played together worked together and in fact thought together that's thought not thought <laughs> uh, although they did apparently go at it uh, in, in a spirited debate kind of way and they, they mm-hmm. really loved doing that mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't all just like wine and roses Uh, We usually owned all of our toys in common, talked over our thoughts and aspirations, so that nearly everything that was done in our lives has been the result of conversation, suggestions, and discussions between us.
1: That was a great Catherine Hepburn.
0: (laughs) Oh, I could do it as Catherine Hepburn if you want. (laughs)
1: Okay, yep. Start over, please.
0: No, (laughs) Uh, I think there's another quote. I'll do that one later.
1: Okay, so that kind of goes to show you, like, just how how connected these guys were just from a, a very, very young age. And they were four years apart. I mean, siblings that are four years apart usually don't keep in touch after a certain age, <laughs> let alone spend their lives together, you know. So um, it was pretty cool that they had like that kind of connection and the fact that the if you put the two of them together, they were greater than the sum of their parts, basically. Um, apparently, Orville was um, was, once you got to know him, he was— a lot of fun to be around he was if you had to pick between the two um, as to who was maybe the more brilliant engineering mind you probably go with Orville but that's not to say that Wilbur was any kind of slouch Um, and of the two Wilbur was the more outgoing uh, uh, person um, Orville was very very shy and Wilbur even experienced a pretty big dip in his outgoingness he had a years-long depression um, that derailed his college career. He was going to go to Yale, study to become a minister, and do who knows what else. Um, and he was playing hockey one day and I guess took a stick to the face. And I think a couple of other things because he had a, a long-standing digestion and heart problem after that. But after his face healed, something something changed in him, and he, he went into a years-long funk. And rather than go to college, he directed his energy toward— uh, nursing his ailing mom, who was dying of tuberculosis around that time, and uh, spent a few years um, rather rather than going to Yale, staying home and just kind of being uh, pretty down in the dumps about things. And it, fr- luckily, he had Orville around. Orville was also a indefatigable optimist who helped um, the brothers through some really dark times, and this was one of them.
0: Yeah, Wilbur didn't even graduate high school because of that, which is mm-hmm. remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um and also didn't know they had street hockey <laughs> way back then. Right. So, that's something I learned too, but uh yeah, at um Orville was uh like even from a, when he was a kid, he would go door to door um collecting bones and selling them as uh as fertilizer to the local fertilizer place. Sure. Uh he built a printing press and then when he graduated high school, he launched a newspaper, the West Side News, and that's when he got Wilbur sort of out of his depression. He's like, come on, brother. You, you get on over here. Uh, you can be the editor. I'll be the publisher. Um, <laughs> it was the same year their mother finally did pass away in 1889 of TB. Mm-hmm. And it seems like that really did kind of save his brother and put them on a on, a, on a renewed shared path together, I think.
1: Yeah. So um The the, shortly after that, I'm not quite sure what year it was, but the bicycle was a a big deal. I guess it was 1892, I'm sorry. The bicycle craze um, was in full swing, and they decided that they would um, pool their their, uh, common talents together and and open a bike shop in Dayton. Um, And that's what they did. They had a bike shop for a while, uh, for many, many years, even after they were— Steadily um, experimenting with human flight, um,
0: Catherine this, managed that bike shop. By the way,
1: this was so you know she was the only one in the entire family to, uh, aside from her parents, to graduate from college. She was yeah. the only Wright child. Yeah, did. I couldn't
0: get I couldn't get a lot. I tried to find out. You know, it's kind of one of those things where when there are five uh, kids that live into adulthood and mm-hmm. two of them are the Wright brothers, you're like, well, what did the other ones do? And there was a lot of good stuff on Catherine and how she assisted them through the years. But I couldn't really find out anything else about the other uh, the other ones.
1: The other two were older brothers, and both of them weirdly became book keep, bookkeepers. Hmm. I don't know mm. why I said it odd the first time. But the first one became estranged from the family, moved to Kansas City. The other one moved to Kansas City, got homesick, and came back to Ohio and then became a bookkeeper, right. and that was, was no it. Shame they, in that. they led no, they led rather unremarkable, you know, solid
0: lives. I mean, they didn't reinvent the airplane, but there's no, no. shame in bookkeeping.
1: <laughs> no, they didn't. <laughs> but Catherine, um, you know, the fact that she was the only uh, right child to graduate from a full four-year college with a degree, um, she also did that while she was taking care of the family after her mother died. Like the whole family was like, well, you're the only woman here, so you got to take care of the family. And then she also um, came back from college. I think she went to Oberlin and um, became a teacher while she was also taking care of the family too. So she does deserve a lot more credit and kudos than she gets for sure. Uh,
0: Yes, the C and the K. So let's take a break. Yeah? Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about what's going on there at that bike shop right after this. So the brothers have a bike shop. Catherine's running the thing. They're tinkering around in there. The world, uh, you know, previous to this bike shop opening in 1892, like you said, there were um, electric trolleys going around Mm -hmm. and Carl Benz had built the first like real good automobile. And these guys were, you know, they liked their bike shop. It was doing great. But Wilbur was like, you know what? I see what's going on in France. And I, I think that we can do this brother. Like who cares that we're not college educated? Who cares that I didn't even finish high school and who cares that we're just bike shop owners in Dayton? I think we can, we can invent a powered airplane. They didn't even call them airplanes at the time, a powered flyer. Mm -hmm. And so he wrote to, uh, the Smithsonian institution in DC and said, uh, should I read it as Catherine Hepburn? Yes, please. <laughs> it said, I believe that simple flight is at least as possible to man. I am an enthusiast but not a crank. I wish to avail myself of all that is already known and then, if possible, add my bit, you old poop. <laughs> that was a great Truman Capote. <laughs> it was. And I think that'll probably never happen again. I think there's one more quote, but that should be Sammy Davis Jr.
1: No, <laughs> Do the third quote as Truman Capote then. Just keep building on it know. like that. All, all
0: right. right. So, uh, the long and short of it is the secretary of the Smithsonian, (laughs) uh, a man named Samuel Langley, uh, got this letter. He uh, was a man who was receiving a lot of government grants to work on powered flight. Yeah, it was huge. Everybody was working on it at the time. Everyone was. And he was failing at it. He had something called the Aerodome, which by the time the Wright brothers got cranking up, had already failed.
1: Yeah, um uh, luckily he wasn't a uh, one of those egotistical guys who controls the purse strings. He said, "All right, well, you know, if you need some information, yeah. Here's a bunch of information and he sent them everything that, that they had. Yeah. Um he sent them like a basically a reading list and a bunch of um journals that they should subscribe to and start investigating. Um and really kind of helped them get along their way. Um this was also uh, a time when some early flyers were were approaching this scientifically and, and publishing their data. Not the least of which was a guy named Otto Lilienthal, and I we must have talked about him in the wind tunnel episode too, because he definitely was a an inspiration. Who actually died during one of his test flights? Yeah. And on his tombstone, it says sacrifices must be made, <laughs> which are pr- his purported last words, which is controversial. He probably oh, really? actually didn't say that, but um, that's what is on his tombstone. But oh, he wow. left a bunch of tables. So they started studying like Otto Lilienthal's like flight test data. They were subscribing to journals, reading books. Just, just um, they were reading everything they could about the mechanics of flight and birds and just trying to figure this out. Um, and they basically, through this um, approach, through just basically absorbing the, um, the, the data and the, the theories that were already out mm-hmm. there, they figured out, okay, we seem to understand um, how to uh, get this stuff in the air and keep it up in the air. We've got, like, lift and drag figured out. Um, we have power sources generally figured out. What seems to be the big challenge is controlling the plane when it's in the air. Yeah, Because that's what got out Lilienthal, this thing where you actually, where you start to turn, and then all of a sudden the, the flying craft turns back the original direction, and it causes it to stall. So you no longer have any lift, and you just fall out of the air like a sack of potatoes. Um, that had to do with controlling the plane. So the Wright brothers identified very quickly and early on that that was a, a good thing to to concentrate on and that's what they started with was figuring out how to control the plane in the air
0: yeah because as we'll see later on when we get to france they uh they could fly straight mm-hmm. they could fly in a circle but they couldn't control straight and circle at the same time and fly uh where they wanted to fly which is a big key in an airplane is you want to actually go someplace not just whatever's straight ahead of you So they said, uh, well, here's, you know, the big challenge was the fact that, and we've talked about this on a few of our different episodes over the year about, about plane flight. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's three things you got to do when you're up there is you got to control your pitch, which is your nose up and your nose down, your roll, which is your wing tips uh, going, you know, up or down and turning you. And then what? And then you got that yaw, yaw control, one yaw. of the best Simpsons jokes ever. <laughs> Look at that yaw control. Uh, and that is nose right or nose left. And it's those three things, those three different axes, controlling them all at the same time stumped everybody.
1: Yes, um, because the the flying contraptions that were being built were basically gliders. They were basically hang gliders. Yeah, that, exactly. Exactly. Um, that people were building, which was a, a big first step that we needed to figure out, because with a hang glider you can figure out the, the 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 shape, the size, the curvature, the angle of the wing. Uh, and when the Wright brothers came into this this field, when they decided to cast their lot and to figure out how to fly, um, basically people figured had thought they had already figured out the wing. Um, but that one thing about seeing, like controlling the wing to moving from one side to the other without stalling out, um, like I said, they, they kind of studied the mechanics of birds. And, and one of them noticed, I guess it was Wilbur, um, noticed that when a bird banks, the actual shape of its wing changes so that when the wing twists uh, a certain way, it causes air to go above it, to build up above it or below it which means that you're going to turn one way or the other, depending on which way your wing is curved. And he said, hey, if we could figure out how to make our wings do that, that might really work. But how, but how, but how, Chuck?
0: Yeah. So here's the sort of movie, one of the aha moments. And hopefully it happened like this. This is a great story if it wasn't. But he was in his bike shop. He sold a dude an inner tube and was holding the empty box when the guy left. And he said, by Zeus's beard... This looks like two parallel wings of a biplane. Mm-hmm. And when I twist this thing just right, the right wing tips curve down and the left wingtip curves up uh, on this box. And he was like, I, th- I think I've just stumbled upon the way to do this, except we're going to do it uh, initially with uh, what was basically sort of like a glorified box kite.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, we're
0: going to do it with wires running through the wings that you can twist and warp these things from the ground, which was – a big, big deal. They, they were doing this in Dayton. People would walk by, and they're like, man, that is one crazy kite. I've never seen a kite do this kind of stuff.
1: Oh, I think you should do that in Sammy Davis. <laughs>
0: that is one crazy kite, babe.
1: <laughs> Very nice.
0: So, uh, yeah, so they were in Dayton still at this point, <laughs> flying this box kite around, and they were starting to get the hang of bending these wings to their will to make it do stuff.
1: Yeah, that's I what humans how much do. I love the Sammy, man. It has changed not just the podcast, <laughs> but my life, frankly, for the better. Oh boy. So yeah, they start testing out on um, as kites, which is pretty sensible because you know the goal ultimately is to get a human in there and then to power the whole thing. But you know you want to make sure that the thing's not going to crash or stall out or whatever. So they would do um, they they would build these gliders and then basically control them like kites before they they. They got in there very sensibly, um, which I think is a, a, a pretty smart
0: move. Yeah, they just started building them bigger, basically. Like each one was a little bit bigger than the one before.
1: Right, and then once once they would see like, okay, yeah, this principle actually works, um, then they would start to get into the to the glider. They would convert the, the the kite to a glider and then try themselves with them in there. So they they again the purpose was to get a person aloft. It's supposed to be human flight. Um, But they they realized that to get a human in the air, you needed a really, really big glider. Mm -hmm. Or you needed a really good, strong headwind. And they didn't have the money or the resources to build a really, really big glider of the size that it would have taken to just fly it around Dayton. So they started looking for places that have um, really high winds. And, I mean, if this is going to be turned into a really good movie— there's going to be like letter writing scenes because they oh, did yeah. a lot of letter writing <laughs> and it actually like moves the story forward quite frequently. Oh, and totally! This is one of those cases they wrote to the National Weather Service or the U.S. Weather Bureau, and they said, "Hey, can do you have any wind data around the United States?" And they said, "By God." Sorry, by Zeus's beard, we do. (laughs) We have reams of that stuff. And they sent them the um, September and August, I believe, weather data for the United States, all the weather stations across the United States. And they started pouring over the data looking for reliable, um, strong winds. And they they found several.
0: Yeah, what they wanted, though, was um, they wanted to kind of work in private. So they said, Mm -hmm. who has a lot of wind and not many people around? And where they landed... uh, quite literally, was (laughs) Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. And this is at the uh, Outer Banks of North Carolina, Mm -hmm. which now um, is sort of a different place. I mean, it's still, um, it's not like Daytona Beach or anything. But (laughs) back then, there was like not much of anything there. It had really good wind. It had sandy dunes that if you did crash this thing, it wouldn't be as bad as as crashing like in a a hard field and like a frosty field in Dayton, Ohio. Mm Mm-hmm. And so they said, "This is the place. Let's go down to Kitty Hawk." Uh, they did so in 1900 with a, a 17-foot uh, wingspan glider. Uh, they had that same, you know, same wire technology to bend these wings like the box kite. Yeah, and they couldn't get it off the ground uh, with a passenger, so it couldn't be a glider. And they said, "We still got to treat this thing as a kite." Basically,
1: yeah. They they went back to the drawing board. They couldn't figure out what the problem was. Um, and they they realized that there might have been something wrong with the wing, so they started kind of pouring themselves into the wing a little more. Um, they figured out that maybe the the curvature of the top of the wing needed to be taller and closer to the front. And they came up with a, another glider, the 1901 glider, which had a 22 foot wingspan and went back to Kitty Hawk. Um, and this time they they did manage to get in the air. Um, they took this collider for a flight, but just like with Otto Lilienthal, it stalled out with Wilbur on it, and it crashed to the ground. He cracked his head open on a um, strut, a wing strut, I believe, and um, could have died. He was very lucky he didn't die, but he didn't. Um, and they said, okay, well, back to the drawing board. We, we've got to figure this out. And they, they figured something out that I think probably pushed them along. They, What they were doing wasn't wrong they were following data that was wrong. From the guy who died. From Otto Lilienthal. They should have been their first clue. They figured, right, they figured out that his data wasn't um, particularly reliable, um, or it was just plain old incorrect. And that there was also something called Smeaton's coefficient, which was the value for air density that you would use when you were figuring out things like drag or lift. And they went back to the drawing board and said, we are going to have to conduct our own experiments and create our own tables. And this is when they built their very famous, now thanks to our episode on wind tunnels, wind tunnel.
0: That's right. Um, They, like we said, there were wind tunnels around, but uh, they had one themselves. I think it was about six feet long. Mm -hmm. And they built 200 little uh, model wing designs because, you know, we've said it before, but it bears in mind, repeating, that they're working with – these wings are stacked so it's not just like <laughs> it's not a uh why is that funny?
1: <laughs> Forget it.
0: <laughs> I think I know what you're talking about. Okay. It's it's not just a single wing coming out each side. It's like a biplane or a box kite. So you've got you've got four different well not four different, it's really two different things you're trying to figure out, but you've yeah. got four wings and you know they had to carve these things to um you know that like what if the top wing is a little bit different and the bottom wing is a little bit different right. so it's a lot of experimentation that went into this yeah and they built 200 model wings uh and tested them in that little wooden wind tunnel mm-hmm. and the the real key though was that they had equipment that could very accurately measure that lift and drag and they could really kind of stack everything out head to head and see which one worked the best yeah they, or they, which combination rather.
1: Yeah, they built what are called balances, which measure the the movement of the, say, like the wing or the the, the, uh, the movement of the air around the wing. Um, we talked a lot about that in the wind tunnel episode, but I didn't realize that engineers basically consider that the balances that they created to be on par, if not exceeding the uh, impressiveness of the fact that they, they achieved flight. Like right. these balances were not so precise and they built them out of old bike spokes and hacksaw blades. Yeah. But that that was one of the things they were well known for was they could take they could say, "Oh yeah, a hacksaw blade, what could I use this for?" and they would just fit it into different scenarios in their mind and say, "Oh, I could do this or I need to build this, what could I use for this?" and they would come up with hacksaw blades and bike spokes and then more impressive than that, these things would actually work. So thanks to their dedication to experimentation, and and taking down data and then building these balances that gave them very, very accurate data, they not only were able to build their own um, tables to figure out which wing shape and form and size was going to produce the best lift and the best control, um, they also were able to revised Smeaton's coefficient, which had been in use since the 18th century, um, from 0.05 to 0.0033. And if you you do the math today using modern equipment, it was almost exactly precise. And they figured it out thanks to their hacksaws and bike spokes.
0: That's right. And Jimmy Smeaton sat up in his grave, (laughs) burped out a little dust bubble. Right. And then laid back down. (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh, I don't feel like it today.
0: So uh, they have their own data now. They go back to Kitty Hawk in 1902, uh, well armed, feeling good. They get their third glider going based on this data, and it worked. They it could carry a person, yeah. and they had this you know they had this sliding effect that caused Wilbur to crash uh, in that last flight. So they added a rudder mm-hmm. to stabilize things during turns. And they made thousands of test flights with this glider uh, over the course of like 1902 and 1903. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of times they went over 600 feet, like you said earlier, in altitude in a glider. And they said, and I think this is a great time for a break. They said, "I tell you what's next. We got to power this thing with an engine, or we're just gliding around like a bird." Yep. So we'll be back right after this to talk about their power source.
1: Okay, Chuck. Um, so, they have, they have the, the shape, the size, the design of the actual flying machine, but unless they power it, it's just gliding, basically, and they knew that gliding wasn't going to cut it. What's more, it's worth pointing out, Chuck, that they had already contributed to um, aeronautics and our understanding of aerodynamics to a, a, an astounding degree that the, the data sets that they came up with from their wind tunnel was the, the greatest, most advanced set of data any scientist on planet Earth had at the time. And again, these are the self-taught Wright brothers working in their bicycle shop who are doing this. But they said, that's not enough. We're really close. We think we can figure this out. We, we are going to invent the airplane, basically. Um, and that's what they said about doing.
0: Yeah, so, um, and I still can't imagine, dude, being 600 feet up The poop-your-pants feeling, that must have been...
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: You you know who could do it
1: really well? I see Sam Rockwell. Oh, yeah. As either Orville or Wilbur. Maybe Orville. Both.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. He'd be like Tom (laughs) Hardy and Legend. Yeah, Yeah, you just change him up. He wouldn't be twins, but he could play both parts. That'd be kind of cool. Sure. You only got to pay one guy.
1: (laughs) That's right, but you have to pay him twice.
0: (laughs) So uh, they go back to Dayton. They decided... uh, uh, they were trying to figure out how to power this thing. And they said, well, if we're going to power this, we need to figure out the engine and the propeller. And they thought about the Navy. They were like, the Navy builds plenty of propellers for their boats. And they were very surprised to learn that in all those years that the Navy never really worked on uh, thrust and the design of a propeller.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So they said thrust is the key here. So we're going to go back here, and we're going to carve dozens and hundreds of little tiny propellers By hand from little tiny pieces of wood.
1: I'll bet you love that, don't you? Miniatures.
0: God, I love it. And (laughs) I I mean, I try to carve something every time I go camping. And in 35 years, I've never carved anything that was worth keeping.
1: (laughs) What do you, do you have like a go to, like fertility idol or knife? I
0: I used to try and carve like uh, tobacco pipes and then, uh, (laughs) Just little people, and I was just never any good at whittling and stuff. But it's How would you get the hole through the pipe? That was the problem. <laughs> sure.
1: So you got the pipe. It was just not functioning.
0: Well, I would have to then take it home and, like, use a drill or something, but it never made it. They always just ended up in the fire. I got you. Okay.
1: But but go back to where you came from, you <laughs> stupid pipe.
0: So they're carving these little propellers— and they, and, and Dave points out, too, that they may, may have been the first engineers ever mm-hmm. to come to the realization that the same forces that generate lift in an airplane in a curved wing, mm-hmm. which is Bernoulli's principle, was the same force that worked with a propeller, and that a propeller was essentially just a wing that's uh, vertical and spins.
1: Yeah, they figured out that there's a direct correlation between lift and thrust, and it just has to do with whether the wing is horizontal or vertical. And the idea that they were the first ones to figure this out is just mind-boggling to me. But they seem to be, and at the very least, even if they weren't the first ones to figure it out, they were the ones who figured out how to build a propeller blade Mm -hmm. such that it did produce thrust. So um, they figured out how to get this thing to be more than a glider by propellers moving and pushing the the, uh, the plane through the air. Propelling it, you could say. But <laughs> they had to figure out how to power the propellers. And that was a big, big problem. Because at the time, the thing that had held people back for a very long time was um, – Steam technology was basically all you had, yeah. And you just were not going. You were you were not getting off of the ground with a steam engine. Um, so the the Wright brothers apparently wrote a bunch of letters to a bunch of different engine making companies and said, "Here are our." you know, parameters or design parameters, can you fulfill these? And they couldn't. Not a single company came back and said, we can do this. Although apparently a couple did, but but said, we could do this for, you know, the king's ransom. Yeah. and They're like, we can't afford that. So the Wright brothers being the Wright brothers just said, we'll just do this ourselves.
0: Yeah. We'll go back to that bike shop. Mm -hmm. And they had a guy working there named Charlie Taylor, who was a machinist. And he was, you know, it just sounds like another one of these guys that was just really good at figuring stuff out.
1: In the movie, Charlie and Catherine would be romantic interests of one another. It would be super
0: cute. Oh, well, there's actually a sad story later that involves that. but Will we'll it say, make
1: the story even better, say though? Save that
0: for the end. Okay. Um, let's say just they just had a brief fling, and he, maybe she inspired him to tinker better. Okay. Does it work that way? Sure, it can. Why not? <laughs> or maybe she gives him the brilliant idea during some like hot coitus. <laughs> I
1: guess I was thinking maybe like a, a rowboat ride on the lake, but sure, Coitus. I guess you could have Coitus in the in the rowboat on the lake. <laughs> we should just
0: abandon this. All right. So Charlie builds a hey, sixth
1: grade classes, by the way.
0: <laughs> oh, I know we should probably take all that out. <laughs> okay. So Charlie builds a four cylinder engine out of uh, l- aluminum, and no one had ever used aluminum before in aircraft construction. So Mm -hmm. this was yet another thing that the Wright brothers and uh, Charlie Taylor came up with that would uh, ended up like revolutionizing aviation. It became the backbone of aviation. Was using this lightweight aluminum, super strong, super light, and they connected this thing to the propeller using bicycle chains.
1: Yeah, and if they if they weren't showing off before, they were by then because the engine they created, they figured out they needed a minimum of 8 horsepower and the engine they created was 12 horsepower. So it had more than enough to, pr- to power the propellers, which would produce thrust, which would actually create powered flight. And those bike chains um, were pretty ingenious too because there were um, two uh, sets of gears, one on each side going toward... Uh, Each propeller, and those bike chains connected the propeller to the engine, but they to keep the propellers from shooting the, I guess it would be yaw out the um, (laughs) yin-yang, from creating a gyroscope with the two propellers going the same way, they they decided to have the propellers go in the opposite direction of one another. To make that happen, they just turned one of the bike chains into a figure eight. How ingenious is that?
0: Yeah, going in opposite ways, kind of like, oh, I don't know. Like you see on airplanes these days. Exactly.
1: So the Wright brothers figured that out too. So now all of a sudden they put all this stuff together. They put together some controls because remember controls were like one of the big um, – That was one of the big challenges. They figured out a whole set of controls that controlled the rudder, that controlled these elevators in the front of the airplane that kept the nose from diving or lifting too much, um, and then they had the uh, the little lever that that um, warped the wing one way or another to let you bank. And so they they could control pitch, roll, and yaw on a engine powered aircraft with dual propellers, and they were ready to go.
0: All right, so. Here's how this thing is actually flown, which is pretty interesting because, you know, like you said before, um, they were figuring out, like the biggest trick was how to figure out how to control this thing so Mm -hmm. you could make it go where you wanted it to go. Mm -hmm. And no one had really done this effectively yet. So it sort of um, operated like, uh, like you said, like a hang glider and that the pilot is laying down on his stomach in the middle of the plane. Uh, You've got the engine on the right and then right in front of the pilot. Uh, was what was known as the elevator, which right. are two little um, stacked wings that could be adjusted. And you adjust them with a little wooden lever and the left hand of the pilot to control the pitch. Uh, and that is nose up or down.
1: Right. Um, and those apparently used to go in the back of the plane. And uh, Otto Lilenthal um, crashed with the elevators in the back. So the Wright brothers were the ones that moved them to the front, which helped quite a bit. That was a big one. Um there was also the hip cradle. Yeah, that side the, to side. Yeah, it was like using your hips to to steer the plane, basically. Um, and so the 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 this little the hip cradle that you laid in um, was connected to wires that pulled on the wings that caused them to warp one way or another. And then it also was connected to the rudder so that that would stabilize um, yaw as well. So you had. Two different mechanisms that controlled three those three different axes.
0: It's very now all ingenious. of a sudden.
1: It really is super ingenious. Now all of a sudden, you have a plane that's that's under human control.
0: Right. Like they couldn't figure out at this point a, a joystick that could control all those things at once. So that right. that hip cradle was, I think, pretty smart. Um, to take off, like this is the one thing I actually never knew. I always wondered how did they, like surely they didn't have that engine powerful enough to get them going and take off. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is correct. They actually had to get up in the air for those 12 horses to do their work. And to do that, they slid this thing on a dolly uh, on a 60-foot rail, basically, Mm -hmm. uh, by the hub of a bicycle wheel. So they get it going on this dolly, and then it launches. And then that's when the engine has enough, uh, I guess, enough of a head start with the thrust to get it going in the air.
1: Yeah, so when the thing kind of launched off of the the rail, it was in glider mode a little bit. It's sure, the, it, that helped the engine kick in or take over, get enough power.
0: Yeah, I mean, I imagine they had the engine going though, don't you think?
1: <laughs> no, they no, they totally did. But like you were saying, it wasn't enough to just go from a gotcha. standstill. Yeah, yeah, they needed that that gl- that glide to get it started. Right. So on. Uh, December 17th at uh, 10.35 a.m., actually, there was an unsung test flight that doesn't get a lot of praise. But on December 14th, they tried their first attempt in this 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 powered flyer, and they tossed a coin to see who would go, and Wilbur won. And it went um, down the track and went off of the track and crashed immediately and broke the elevators. <clears throat> so they took three days to repair the elevators, and on the next try, on December seventeenth, it was Orville's turn, and so he became the first human to fly in a f- powered flight. O- Orville o- Orville Wright did. He flew for twelve seconds, um, uh, just a few feet, I believe. I don't. I think it was about one hundred and twenty feet, um, but it was controlled. He landed it, and it was a it was a genuine powered flight. And from that first flight, I think even from the one that um, that Wilbur tried three days before, they were like, "This is going to work." Yeah, I can tell from the way the controls responded, and like, "This is going to work." We just gotta, we just gotta keep trying. So they did.
0: Yeah. So on that same day, they did three more flights, and the longest one, Wilbur. I love that they were taking turns. I think it's so cool. Yeah. Um, Wilbur piloted. Uh, 852 feet in about a minute in the air, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. is remarkable. Like, this is the moment of the movie, you know, where everyone is just going crazy. It's like the high point of the film. And uh, then they go in, and just like a movie, they go inside, they're having a cocktail, they're warming up, and they're so happy. And a big gust of wind comes in and lifts this thing off the ground and smashes it and (laughs) and breaks it into pieces. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, man. could you imagine? Yeah. So, yeah, I can't imagine seeing that.
1: You'd just be like, oh, look, the thing's uh, being lifted into the air. Look at it. Gl- oh, God, no.
0: <laughs> They're like, it's tied down. And then Sam Rockwell <laughs> yeah. goes to Sam Rockwell. Yeah, but crash.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. That's the problem. So um, they apparently were not particularly worried about this at this point because they'd already shown multiple times that this proof of concept was was. It it would work. Yeah. Um. That they had they had undertaken the first flight. Uh. They'd done it basically. So they um they went back to Dayton. They had a habit of leaving their um their their test uh flyers at Kitty Hawk because they'd beat them up so badly that it wasn't worth you know moving them back. Um. And some of them are preserved. And I believe that first flyer that they created is in uh one of the Aaron Space Museums. Maybe maybe in Dayton. I'm not sure. It would make sense. I've seen that somewhere. It might be at um, the one out by Dulles.
0: Maybe or maybe I've just seen a a replica. I feel like I've seen one in an airport and not a museum, so that was definitely a replica. Gotcha. And it was actually only six inches. Why? <laughs> right. And a You're kid like, was flying it around. <laughs> sure. It was RC
1: controlled. <laughs>
0: yeah. Come to think of it, I've got this all wrong.
1: <laughs> so, the the Wright brothers, they released a press release. Like, w- they were acutely aware of, you know, what they'd just done. This wasn't something they had fallen backwards into. This wasn't something that, you know, just happened through sheer luck. Like, they worked their way to powered flight. So, they let the world know about it, and they got zero response. In return, basically,
0: yeah, this was pretty disappointing. I think they, um, you know, they sent out this press release, like you said, and got nothing. And I think they were like, um, "Hey, everyone, we flew a plane, <laughs> right. like this thing that everyone's trying to do all over the world. We did it. Hi." And it was. It seems to be just a case of, um, like, like Dave says, "The boy who cried wolf." Like these newspaper editors had been burned by writing about other people mm-hmm. who said they'd done it. And they're like, yeah, right. Um, and it took, and this is kind of one of the greatest parts of the story, I think. In September 1904, a journalist that was writing a beekeeping journal uh, called Gleanings and Bee Culture, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. I.A. Root, was the first person to actually say, yeah, I'll write about this thing. That sounds like a good story.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Gleanings and Bee be? Culture.
1: Who would, who would play
0: him? Who I uh, John C. Riley, I think.
1: Oh yeah, good good call, man. Okay, so so John C. Riley shows up. He he had read about the rights and he said, "Can I can I see one of your flights?" And they invited him out. And he wrote about it, and it didn't get much attention at the time because I don't think it, it, Gleanings and Bee Culture had a really huge readership. <laughs> it was a but glowing he,
0: uh, story, though.
1: I think you should re- read this quote in
0: whatever <laughs> whatever accent you want to read. <laughs> no, I'm just going to read it regular. Okay. Uh, God, in his great mercy, has permitted me to be at least somewhat instrumental in ushering in and introducing to the great wide world an invention that may outrank the electric cars, the automobiles, and all other methods of travel, and one which may fairly take a place beside the telephone and wireless uh, telegraphy. Am I claiming a good deal? Well... I will tell you my story, and you shall be the judge.
1: So that was pretty good. I mean, for no accent whatsoever.
0: <laughs> oh, I thought you were talking about the actual article.
1: <laughs> so, um, yeah, they they still didn't get any kind of attention from that, but it is a pretty great little footnote to the whole thing that that was the first article that was written on them. Yeah. In they, gleanings in bee culture.
0: <laughs> they even wrote the War Department and said, Hey, we invented an airplane. Um, do you want to buy it? And they said, Nah.
1: Yeah, one of the reasons why was because the War Department was like, well, can you send us the specifications? The Wright brothers were like, no, yeah, we invented again. this. and Yeah, you give us a contract first and then we'll give you the specifications. And the War Department said no. Even worse than the fact that they weren't getting any kind of credit for their accomplishment and no takers on um, selling their, their design was that over in France, remember we said that even the Wright brothers thought that the French would be the first to, to a powered flight. Um, the French were convinced that they would be the first to the power flight and that they had cracked it. There were um, there was a Brazilian balloonist named Alberto Santos Dumont. I think they made a movie about him recently. He's a super colorful character, right? I don't know. I believe they did. He gave a demonstration he in gets Paris. Movies.
0: And the Wright Brothers movie.
1: Started. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I feel like they just called it Dumont with an exclamation point maybe. Huh. Um, but he he flew a plane in Paris, I believe, of his own design, Um, and it just flew in a straight line, no control. But it was enough at the time because, again, no one was paying attention to the Wright brothers. It was enough for the French to be like, Sacre bleu, you know, this this flight has been achieved, and the the Wright brothers are like, no, this doesn't, no, what we're doing is so much better than this. 1908, there was a guy, a Frenchman named Henri Farman, who was the first to fly a powered plane in a one-kilometer closed circle. This is 1908. It, It bears mentioning that the Wright brothers, who, again, they're total outsiders. No one's listening to them. Three years previous to this, they had stopped the experimental stage. They had reached the point where they had produced a reliable plane. And by 1905, three years before this French pilot did that one-kilometer closed-circle flight that just knocked the socks off of the French, um, they had done a a 24-and-a-half-mile circle in 39 minutes, the Wright brothers had, three years before this. And so imagine accomplishing this and then seeing people doing, like, like preschooler stuff compared to what you're doing, getting all of this praise and attention and press lavished on them, and no one's listening to you. This is the situation that the Wright brothers found themselves in at the time.
0: Okay, so Wilbur has had enough. He goes to France in 1908 on August 8th, <laughs> and he said, you know what? I'm going to go demonstrate this thing. I'm going to show them that flying straight is stupid, and I'm going to show them that we can actually make this thing turn and do whatever we want. And so he went to a little small racetrack outside of Le Mans mm-hmm. and uh, got on the ground and said, gentlemen, I am going to fly. And they all spoke French. And they were like, I don't know what, what he said. said? but uh, <laughs> He said something. I think he's about to do something big. <laughs> so uh, he, he flew. And if the French were like sacreble at that one flight, they were really knocked out at this one. Uh, They all realized that what was going on in front of their eyeballs was something that the French had never accomplished, that no one had ever accomplished before, Mm -hmm. and that they were basically done. And uh, there was a Frenchman, supposedly, that was there, uh, that was quoted in the newspapers by saying, nous sommes battus, Uh, we are beaten.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, imagine being like a a French at the time and seeing like, you know, somebody in a, a a hang glider with a bicycle gear on it and being like, people are flying, people are flying. And then somebody shows up in like a a Piper Cub is like, watch this. That was kind of the level of knock your socks off that that the French saw. Um, And that was it. Like from that point on, the Wright brothers were overnight sensations. They were the first superstars of the 20th century for being the first to fly. And they finally started to get their acclaim.
0: So, yeah, these guys are superstars. Catherine is actually, uh, if you remember, we haven't talked about her in a bit. She's actually a superstar, too, Mm -hmm. because she goes with them. She learns French for the express purpose of helping the brothers out while they go on uh, an eventual European tour. Um, She negotiates a deal with, because these guys, you know, I get the sense that neither one of them were businessmen, and they really sort of had their head in the invention game. And so Catherine was really key for... You know, initially managing that bike shop and then helping them out with their journaling and data keeping. And then uh, she's the one that actually negotiated with the Army. Cause, oh, yeah? Uh, yeah, the Army said, hey, we'll give you guys some money. Uh, we'll give you guys $25,000 as a grant. But you got to be able to fly a pilot and a passenger um, and I presumably, you know, a couple of bombs or something and a gun maybe. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Would be my guess.
1: Or at the very least a guy with a rifle. Yeah, on sure. The side. Yeah, something so on the hip. was this before or after um, the tragic game of hide-and-seek with Catherine and Charlie Taylor where he hid in the <laughs> trunk and, and got locked in and suffocated to death that you referenced earlier? I don't know. I'm not sure. Okay, but it was around that time from what I understand, right?
0: I think so. So Catherine, uh, she negotiates this money, and Wilbur uh, – is in France and Orville at this time goes back to D.C. Mm-hmm. and he eventually in D.C. does a flight that goes for seventy minutes. Yeah, in the so air. the
1: the French when they saw this, the French government was like, take our money. How much do you want for this plane? And they started to negotiate with France to sell their military planes. That got the attention of the U.S. War Department finally said, okay, we're on board. We'll start buying planes from you too. And one of the things a lot of people don't realize about the rights is that they spent several years um, around this time training the militaries of um, the U.S. and Europe how to fly planes and yeah. selling them planes. They were the first flight um, instructors. Yeah, they really were. So um, w- during one of this these training, I guess, kind of demonstrations, Orville had a passenger named uh, Lieutenant Thomas Selfridge, and they went up and were circling a field. And uh, I, I'm not quite sure what malfunction they had. Do you know what, th- what it was?
0: Uh, no, I just know that Orville had to cut, you know, cut the engine basically and try and land.
1: He was going to try to glide in. Yeah. And it didn't go very well. The plane, I guess, lost its lift and just fell out of the sky again, which was a real problem back in those days. And um, Orville broke some ribs. Um, He sprained his back. But Thomas Selfridge died. He fractured his skull. He became the first casualty of a a powered uh, airplane crash in the history of humanity, which is kind of a dubious honor, really.
0: Yeah, it was. Uh, Orville recovered, of course. Uh, he came to France and this is when Catherine also came to France and this is where they did their big sort of, um, sort of a victory tour where they were demonstrating this thing all over Europe. Uh, people loved it. It was huge. Um, and like you said earlier, they were Wilbur and Orville and Catherine were the first big celebrities of the 20th century. It's, it's pretty astounding.
1: And Orvo was like, Where's Charlie Taylor? And Catherine was like, I don't know. I haven't seen him in like a year now. He just kind of dropped off the face of the earth. So year. strange. So um when they their uh company uh, became established, they, the the right company is to, to design and build planes, um, when that got again got off the ground, sorry everybody. Um Orville was kind of dedicated to the actual production and invention side, while Wilbur dedicated himself to the business side, meaning he ran around suing anybody he thought was infringing on their patents. Um, And he spent a lot of time doing that. Again, remember, they were kind of raised not to trust outsiders like they trusted their family, um, which is the opposite of the stuff you should know motto. Right. Um, And on some trip, while he was, I believe, filing one of these patent infringements or investigating it, he died uh, after a trip to Boston. He caught typhoid. And I looked, and typhoid Mary was not cooking at the time. She Ah, was on hiatus. Not her fault. Because I thought, wouldn't that just be amazing if he— caught typhoid from Typhoid Mary, but he did not. Um, or as far as I could find, he did not. So he went back home to Dayton and he died. And he was only 45, actually. And remember, Orville and Wilbur planned to like spend the rest of their lives together. So this had a pretty big effect on Orville.
0: Yeah, I get the sense, and this is where uh, it, I sort of hinted earlier about Catherine mm-hmm. and her romance. Mm-hmm. Um, she went with him and kind of stayed with Orville. He didn't have much interest in running the right company anymore so he sold it in 1915 sold all their patents for a million bucks uh about 26 million dollars today so a huge sum of money to you know retire for the rest of your life sure and that's what he did um he still did stuff uh, and this was at hawthorne hill his big mansion in dayton um like he, he built uh, an automatic toaster that sliced the bread <laughs> um, he built a system of chains that, uh, let him adjust the furnace from upstairs. He built a circular shower. Like he was, he was never going to stop building things, but it was all, I got the sense in just sort of, uh, retirement hobby sort of way. Yeah. But Catherine, the sad ending there is, um, she met a man and fell in love. I can't remember his name and decided to get married and was really nervous about Orville. I think he was so used, so dependent on her mm-hmm. being around that she rightfully was scared, and she was correct. And he uh, refused to speak to her ever again after she uh, got engaged and got married. Oh, wow. Which is really kind of cruddy. Uh, that's the nicest way to say it. And, and it made me kind of think ill of him at the end. Mm-hmm. And she uh, got pneumonia and was dying, basically, he still wouldn't talk to her, and uh, finally, one of his friends said, "You gotta go talk to Catherine, man. This is your sister." And apparently, he did uh, arrive at her deathbed at least, but um, but she had died. Yeah, well, I don't. I think he got there f- first, but she she did pass away of pneumonia, and uh, just a very sad ending to her story of after not getting much credit over the years and sort of being at the beck and call of these brothers that were brilliant mm-hmm. inventors mm-hmm. and being a key part of their team and then being too scared to tell her brother that she had fallen in love and gotten married it was really yeah, sad.
1: That is very sad. Um so she so Orville outlived her as well, huh? I yeah. hadn't realized that. Well, he kept uh, like you said tinkering kind of in retirement as a as a as a consummate inventor for the rest of his life and he actually died um well he suffered a heart attack while fixing a doorbell and then died 3 days later, yeah. apparently super alone. I didn't realize that. That was a real bummer ending that I hadn't anticipated, Chuck.
0: Yeah, it's a double bummer.
1: I thought we were going to end it kind of like um, him saying, him being like, I invented to the end. <laughs> and then, you know, the, the um, Sousa band starts playing. <laughs> I got mad at my sister because she
0: found love and I never did.
1: Yeah. Or he did find love and it was his brother who died years before. Yeah, perhaps. So uh, that's it for the Wright Brothers, huh? That's it. Evil Knievel got a two-parter and the Wright Brothers didn't.
0: Yeah, well. <laughs> they, he broke more
1: bones. We're never going to live that down. Nope. I'm never going to let us live, live that down. Uh, you got anything else? Nothing. Did I say that already? Maybe. Okay. Either way, it's time for Listener Mail.
0: Uh, I'm going to call this from a 10-year-old fan. We love hearing from our young listeners. Uh, Hi, guys. My name is Quinn, and I'm uh, 10 years old and from Vancouver, B.C. I really enjoy listening to your podcast on my way to school. The two most interesting podcasts that I've listened to so far is the one about soap. It's really cool how soap is made. And the second one about porcupines. It's so cool that Mm -hmm. the old world porcupines have straight quills. Now the new world porcupines have barbed quills and how they're harder to get out of your body. Mm -hmm. Uh, I am very interested in the Titanic and the story behind it. And I was wondering if you guys ever thought of doing a podcast on the Titanic. Totally, Uh, Yeah, we totally should. Uh, If you have, it's a very interesting topic to listen to. Uh, So if you thought about doing that, then maybe you could do it. It would give me something to look forward to on the car ride to school. I really hope you read this email. And I'm also hoping that you can write back if you have time. Uh, You guys keep up the good work and please keep making podcasts for me to listen to. All caps, thank you so much. Sincerely, Quinn.
1: That was a great email, Quinn. Thanks a lot for it. It's
0: great. And that cute thing happens to where it's from the parent's email,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: uh, which is always one of my favorite things. So I wrote back to Quinn's, I think, dad Mm -hmm. and said to tell Quinn that this is going to be a listener mail. So, uh, yeah, Quinn, we've been wanting to do a Titanic episode
1: for a while, but... There was a period there where everyone had seen Titanic so recently, Mm -hmm. the movie, that it was like, why, why would you even bother to do an episode on it right now? Everybody be like, that's not what James Cameron says. Yeah, now we can do one, and it's high time. I've wanted to since since day one. So listen out for a Titanic episode and know that 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 came from you, there, Quinn.
0: Yeah, that'll be a two parter probably.
1: We'll see. Only time will tell. If we mention Evil Knievel in it, then yes, it probably will be. Right. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us like Quinn did, we are always on the lookout for emails from you. You can send it to us at stuffpodcast at iHeartRadio.com.
0: Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.